Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G Other Voices, a pre-recorded show airing on Wednesday, September 27th, 2023. I'm doing something different today, as we will be listening to two episodes with the same two people. Alex Ferrari is interviewing Billy Carson on the Next Level Soul podcast. The first video is from June, but it will be, inter- it will be the interview on September 9th that we will start with. In that segment, they discuss the Vatican from its archives to its depiction of Jesus from his his teachings to his looks. They also look at the numerous connections between temples and pyramids across the globe from their construction to their significance. The second video, which was the first interview, connects the dots between the Olmecs, Mayans, Aztecs, Sumerians, and the emerald tablets of Thoth of Egyptian fame. What we end up with is an overview of hidden history presented as truth in a clear and impressive way. It got my attention and I hope it gets yours. So here we go with Alex Ferrari interviewing Billy Carson on the Next Level Soul podcast. Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I have always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, after so many requests, we have back on the show today, Billy Carson. And last time we spoke, Billy and I spoke about ancient civilizations, the Emerald Tablets of Thos, Atlantis, and so much more. Well, in this conversation, we go deeper down the rabbit hole of lost civilizations, the origins of the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and so, so much more. This one is going to blow your mind, guys. So without any further ado, let's dive in. I'd like to welcome back to the show, returning champion, Billy Carson. How you doing, Billy? Hey. Great. Look, great to be back. Thank you for having me back on your amazing show. Thank you so much for coming back, brother. I mean, our last conversation uh, broke over a million. I think it's at 1.2 million right now. So people wow. like you and I having a conversation. So I think we, so we, I think we booked this before that. We were just like, we're like, yes. oh man, we gotta keep talking. Uh, but yeah. then it, it kind of blew up, man. So uh, people are excited. This is really mm. great. We're getting this information out there. 
Yes. Listen, that's the most important thing that people begin to hear this information so that they can become researchers on their own and also digest it, discern it and decide, you know, for themselves based on the information given, you know, how do they feel about it? How does it make them feel? And and uh, and what enlightenment can they get out of it? So this is great, man. So since last our conver- since last time we had our conversation, I had the wonderful opportunity to fly over to Europe and spend a little time in Italy. Uh, so the, too much gelato, first of all, and way too much cappuccino and and uh, all sorts of deliciousness over there. But while I was there, I took the opportunity to visit the Vatican and Vatican City, and it was a really eye opening experience because. Uh, I went to Vatican Museum, which is <clears throat> awe-inspiring is not even the word to use. It was there's so much stuff that they have in that mm-hmm. museum. It's they, for people if you've never been there, I'm sure I'm assuming you have, there's so many sculptures that they have that they literally just pile them next to like it, it's like room after room of them, they're just next to each other. Like normally, like one of those pieces would be the centerpiece of another museum, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. They have an embarrassment of riches, and that's the words I was embarrassment of riches. Uh, you're going there, like, oh, yeah. the Raphael did that, and oh, Donatello did that, oh, Michelangelo did that dome, and you're mm-hmm. like, and then you get yeah. to the Sistine Chapel. I was exhausted by the time I got to the Sistine Chapel. I was just like, what it was? Oh, nice, because <laughs> it's so yeah. much. It's it it, it is. It, it started to open my eyes right away. I'm like, wow, how do these how did they get all of this stuff? And it's not just all like Christian stuff, Egyptian, yeah, um, things from Mesopotamia. Um, I, I mean, it's in, insane. And then you walk into St. Peter's Basilica, and I, you're just in awe. It's the biggest church I've yeah. ever been in. And it's just like every corner, you just think, and every corner, there's like masterpieces from every, like mm-hmm. Michelangelo, Donatello, all these people. And you know, oh, there's the, there's the La Pietra, and you're looking at all that stuff. And I don't know if you've had this opportunity. Did you go underground into the uh, catacombs? No, I didn't do the catacombs there. I did the catacombs in uh, Alexandria, but I didn't do the catacombs in Rome. So the so the catacombs, no, the catacombs in St. Peter's is where the where all the popes mm-hmm. are. Yeah. So I went I went down to that area, and all the popes are there. And I turned a corner, mm-hmm. and it's St. Peter's resting space. Like it's the apostles, yeah, crazy. apostle Peter. It was insane. So yeah. as I was going through all of this, the main thing I, I thought myself was, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is that this has little to do with Jesus. This entire oh, very little. This entire <laughs> thing has such little to do with Jesus' teachings, Jesus Christ the yeah. man, and has so much to do about their own power, their own influence, mm-hmm. and maintaining yeah. that power. And, and influence right. over the world. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, you hit it on the head. So, you know, the Catholic religion has literally nothing to do with truthfully uh, achieving a higher sense of consciousness or Christ consciousness. It's really all about them. And even like, for example, the Pope or the priest of the Catholic Church, wherever you are in the world, that's supposed to be the conduit. That's supposed to be God walking in the flesh. Uh, now, we know that we are all gods and God is us, but they take it to another level where they truly, truthfully believe that they're the actual creator of the universe walking around uh, in, a, in, in a mindset of domination, not collaboration. 
And so that's where it goes really south. And then a lot of their rules and laws and their uh, their traditions are just uh, all about, you know, generating revenue and money. Uh, for example, you know, you, you go in and you, you admit that you did something wrong. And now they're going, well, you got to pay a penance to this and you pay these you pay this penance and that's supposed to, you know, rid you of your sin. So from the mindset that they've established is, oh, I can go out here, I can drink, I can hang out, I can I can have sex with anybody I want outside of marriage. I can violate all the rules of, quote unquote, Christianity, as long as I come in here and, and talk to this guy behind this invisible box and, and I can just uh, and give pay some money. And all of my sins will be absolved and I'm good to go and do it all over again. So I can do this once a week. So now I don't have to answer for any of my consequences. I can literally run rough and ragged. I can run, you know, like this wild, wild west on the streets. And then I can curse people out whatever I want. And I can just go and, and talk to this guy. So they've uh, created a system where they generate revenue and money off of beguiling people into thinking that. They can actually absolve themselves of their own responsibility of their own actions by as paying this pay. extra money, just admitting something to somebody behind a box. You want in another yeah. example was I was in uh, Naples and I went to the catacombs in Naples, one of the catacombs there, and I was talking to the guide, and I go, "Well, who own, like what is this? Like who owns this?" And like, "Oh, anything Christian found in Italy, mm. it's automatically property of the Vatican. If it, they just yeah. discovered it." It's automatic if it's property. So when they found it, and this is so interesting, when they found it, um, they called up the Vatican, like, hey, we found these catacombs. Uh, You know, we want to kind of open it up to the public and let people tour. And they're like, yeah, 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 sure, do whatever you want. That's fine. You know, no problem. And then a couple of years later, the Vatican's like, oh, they're making some money. So then they went back to them. This is straight from the (laughs) straight from the guide. He goes, yeah, the Vatican, now we have to pay because, oh, by the way, all the money that is made from the catacombs tickets goes into social programs for the city of Naples, meaning after school mm-hmm. programs, uh, arts, yeah. things for schools and kids and, and, and social programs. So it's for everybody to know. Um, once the Vatican found out it needed money, they go, oh, okay, uh, since it's making money now, you need to pay us $3 million a year as a license. And 50% of all ticket sales. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just like, are you, are you, are you kidding? Yeah. And then when you walk around the Vatican City, you're just like, there's literally gold on the walls. Are, are, are you? Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. It's insane. It's insane. You see, the Vatican is it's its own private kingdom. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a country. It's such, a country. Can, yeah, exactly. They create their own rules and regulations on the fly. And they can change a law or a rule tomorrow or in five minutes and then everyone will have to abide by that Mm -hmm. and you know what's funny i got into a cab in uh from vatican city going back to to uh to the to where we were staying and the the taxi driver who's a local he we started talking about the vatican and boy he did he just started tearing them apart they're like you they we have to pay as italian citizens we have to pay them every year, even though we don't live in Vatican City. Uh, you've got to like they get they pay no taxes. They basically still control Italy yeah. by behind the scenes. They, there's, there's absolute power behind the scenes. Yeah. They're like there was a a girl that went missing in Vatican City. The parent, the family was still trying to find them, but once they're, once you're there, it's gone. You're you're just gone. It was a, it it's was over. fascinating how much power that 
that place has. And let's not even talk about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, the archives. The yeah, archives so. where the books, the knowledge that they have raped and pillaged for centuries from Alexandria, before, either before or after it was you know, going through its thing, and yeah. all the libraries. What do you... What- In the archives at the Vatican, first of all, it's about five miles of archives underground mm-hmm. and, and very, very uh, secure access. In other words, you can't just go, oh, I'm going to go check out the archives underground. No, you have to be a, a, a security cleared, almost top secret cleared based on their standards to get down there. Uh, but they have in there so many incredible discoveries, so much knowledge and wisdom that have been stolen, literally stolen from all around the world. And of course, the Library of Alexandria, that was a book heist. The fire was a distraction. <laughs> the real story of Alexandria, it was a book heist. It was a knowledge theft. They stole the knowledge. They left a few books burning here and then they burned it down to the ground. But the vast majority of the knowledge and wisdom stored at Alexandria was siphoned off and taken to that underground, I call it an underground base at the Vatican. Down there also, according to even some Jesuits, are bones of actual, quote unquote, alien beings, Mm -hmm. uh, information about uh, advanced beings that visited this planet, the Anunnaki, according to the Dogon, the Nomo, and the Sumerians, call them the Pantheon, call them the, the Anunnaki Pantheon. Out of Samaria, they call the Nitiru out of Africa. They had they have all these relics and artifacts of these particular people, even out of Greece. Uh, they have all this down there. They have information even out of Iraq that shows and proves that advanced races had lived on this planet long before this current civilization here exists. And I'm talking about eons and eons ago, super highly advanced with technologies and capabilities of flight and everything else weapons of war that existed, all that information is stored underneath the Vatican archives, along with some of the most incredible texts and books and inventions that ever existed on this planet. And they siphon it away and they're hoarding all of that wisdom and knowledge so that they can keep control and power and domination over the world. And guess what? It's working. So that's that was the, that was my next question. The reasoning for all this is if you control the information, you control the knowledge, there can't exactly. be if 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 the public is ignorant, it's much more mm-hmm. controllable. Yes, you know if the public knew that long before uh, Jesus, long before Moses, and all these people, you know, supposedly were even born or existed, that thousands of years before them, an advanced race lived on this planet, built an Atlantean global civilization, probably Atlantean interplanetary civilization that had capability of space flight and everything else. And that they most likely genetically modified the existing hominids, which then became Homo sapien sapien, in order to put us all in slavery and make us do the workload for them. If we, if they knew that, those stories and those tales from the Sumerian tablets, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas, Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of Going Forth by Day, aka the Egyptian Book of the Dead, uh, you know, the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation, the Epic of Atrahasis, and if all the if they, the myth of Adapa, if they knew that all these texts predominantly made up the majority of the Bible, mm-hmm. then we would be like, well, what are you guys preaching to us? This is all fake. This is all lies. And we know that in the Emerald Tablets, you know, which is my book companion with the Emerald Tablets, that the majority of Jesus's teachings in the New Testament come directly from the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, which are 36, 38,000-year-old teachings. So they must control and hide and secure evidence of this information and this knowledge to keep people basically in this uh, level of ignorance where they can continue to control them and steal their money.
Well, isn't the, you know what, and this is the weirdest thing. While I was driving around, you know, I went to Rome. I, I was staying in Rome when I went to Vatican City. And then I was down the street from the Colosseum and I got to see the Colosseum. You see Roman, Rome is everywhere. Like Rome, 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 Roman. Every stuff all over the place. And f- man, I, I don't want to sound ignorant, man, but it was the first time when I went to Vatican City and I connected it to Rome. I was like, wait a minute. Roman Catholic Church. I never connected Roman as in like the Rome Empire to Catholicism, yeah. even though it's always been called the Roman Catholic Church. I just never connected yeah. it. And that was the first time I'm like, oh my God, that's right. Constantine. Oh my God, that he's the one that created mm-hmm. the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And and, and yeah. they're the ones that sat down and like, okay, let's argue about what really Jesus is. And so they basically built up the mythology in the Council of Nicaea, right? Yes. The Council of Nicaea came together, built up the mythology. They added to the story. They took from a lot of ancient texts and tablets, and then they kind of curated this book, which they want to call it a canonized Bible, right? So they took right. from here, took from there, this tablet, that tablet, this scripture, that papyrus, this non-commodity piece. We like, we, oh, we like this coming out of, out of this um, text over here. And then they kind of just culminated together and then remixed it, put their own spin on it, to make sure that slavery was approved and okay, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we want to add that in there. Got to make sure the slavery is approved, you know, because mm-hmm. people were enslaving each other since back and before the black slaves. I'm talking about in the ancient times, slaves were already going on. Slavery was already in Egypt, going on. Yeah. Sure. It was, yeah. It's nothing new. Yeah. And then so you had that. And then, of course, we want to collect a lot of money. So they have to pay us. We got to make sure we got the money. You got to pay. You know what I'm saying? And you got to do the labor and you got to bring the offerings because we're our, we ourselves are not going to go out and hunt and, and, and grow farms and everything else. So you guys, you're going to have to bring these offerings to us. We want it already cooked. So make sure it's a burnt offering. <laughs> make sure you drain the blood. Make sure it's healthy for us and bring us your fresh, your first harvest because we want the freshest fruit and the freshest vegetables. We don't want the stale stuff. We want your freshest wheat and the freshest breads. And so people would come down and bring everything to the church and give it all away along with whatever money they had left. Uh, and these people would live like fat cats, literally off of pimping the knowledge and understanding of what's going on and tricking people into believing that they had some access to divine power and knowledge when they were just really uh, high-level pimps, is what I call them, man. And the people, you know, the ignorance of the people, you know, you almost can't blame them, but yet at the same time, it's like, how can you, how can so many masses what? of people stand up and fall for this? But I, you know, it happens. It's but the, also, you got to remember the way that they went around, the way that the Council of Nicaea put this in place with Rome. And Rome said, we're now going to dominate the planet with this religion. Mm-hmm. So they combined their beliefs with the Christianity, right? Because they felt like to keeping it separate was creating too much, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ang- anger between the two sides. And everybody wanted to go head to head. So, you know what? We're going to combine it. We'll add our stuff in with their stuff and we'll make it a, a national religion. Well, yeah, now, they were getting as we they taking were, over. Well, they were getting unruly, and Constantine said, "Look, I'll, I'll be unruly, Christian. I'll, I'll be Christian. I'll be Christian. Let's yeah. let's all do this, guys. I'll be Christian. <laughs> let's go over here. We'll, we'll put a pope yeah. up. The pope he talks to God every day. Yeah, the bishops they talk to right. God every few days. Uh, the the cardinals they talk to him like maybe once a month, twice a month, and the priests right. talk to them every once in a while. But these is the, it's, yeah. it's an ordered thing. But no, but we're with you guys because they were getting the Christians were starting to get a little out of hand." So they needed to control them. Yeah, they need to control them. So you know, if you can't beat them, join them. That's the <laughs> mindset, right? Oh, we'll add some of our stuff in with theirs. We'll mix it all around. We'll remix it. But now here's the trick. 
as Rome was on its global escapade trying to dominate and take over the planet, everywhere they went, they would then instill and install this Christianity, this Catholic Christianity in those areas. But this is how they did it. People believe that Christianity was spread by love and the good news. And, and, and no, it was spread by rape, bloodshed, murdering and killing. And so when they came to your town, they literally would take your women and your children they would, you know, they would take the leader of that village or whatever. They would show that like, you guys are going to bow down to us. You're going to follow this religion. You're going to speak our language. And they'll make an example out of somebody. And then everybody else would follow suit. And if they didn't, then they would say, okay, we're going to give you a lot of these torture devices. They would have the Pope's spear, all right, which is still in the museums right now. They, mm -hmm. which, I saw they would it. stick that into a woman's personal parts mm -hmm. and it would explode mm -hmm. on the inside of her. They would have this triangular pyramid with a spire on top and he would reel a man up and down and let it go up into his back door over and over again until he died uh and they had all these torture mechanisms they tortured and killed over 80 million people over the course of 700 years under the uh, under the order of the popes in order to spread love and peace and christianity all around the planet and so but this is you know again all with the authority of rome so this global conquest to spread this and collect money uh, was all done by bloodshed and, and torture, not by love and peace. So just as Jesus says, love thy neighbor and do unto others as you don't do unto you, but make sure that you bring a check, cash, or Venmo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't remember Jesus saying these things. Um, no. <laughs> and, and and it's it's fascinating, you know, like you, you see all of this. When you walk into... By the way, I, I don't know how many churches you. I walked into probably thirty churches because they're everywhere in Italy. Like you can't every turn, everywhere you turn, any like there's a there's a huge church, and then like a two blocks later there's another church, and it's like there are churches everywhere. And every single church I walked into, no matter how rinky dink it looked from the outside, you walk in masterpieces on the wall, on the ceilings, yeah. scrub. It was no matter where you went. It was nothing like here in the States. Here you walk into some churches and they're very humble and they're very, there's no such thing as a humble church in Italy. Yeah. So as you as an, an ignorant person from the field or from the country and you walk at the St. Peter's Basilica and you don't understand anything, mm -hmm. you have to believe yeah. God is here because it's just something mm -hmm. so, so just, it's so, it's, it, it's so grand. So grand, and you know, I I consider myself a fairly educated person, and I walked in, and I, you're just in awe. You're in mm -hmm. awe of it. So I was like, "Wow, if, if if I didn't know better, I mm -hmm. you could easily fall into this." I mean, it's it's yes. And then let's not talk about the marketing campaign of hiring every great master artist of the last five hundred yeah. years and commission <laughs> religious. You know, yeah. that's why every time you go into a museum, it's always a real, generally speaking, always Jesus or some sort of religious depiction mm -hmm. because the Vatican paid yeah. for all of that. Right. Am I right? Exactly. Like, oh, absolutely. You know, even the depiction of Jesus oh. was switched over to the face that became the global popular face. That was actually Caesar Borgia, who was actually uh, one of the sons of an actual pope uh, and killed his own brother to try to take uh, his place. Uh, this guy was just an evil, brutal, killing ruler. Uh, his father commissioned uh, the artist to paint him, his image, as the image of Jesus. And that image still propagates the planet till this very day. And so the image that a lot of people are praying to is not the Jesus that they think it is, but actually 
a natural born killer. <laughs> <laughs> and it is in that's true because I mean it is it was just propaganda. That was the propaganda yeah. of the day were these master master works of paintings and and yeah. you know frescoes and things like that. That was the propaganda of the day. That was the mm -hmm. art of that's all the only way they could get messages like this out there. So because of yeah. this one artist, um, you have these images. But generally speaking, if you go back far enough. I mean, Jesus didn't wasn't a white guy with blue eyes. That doesn't no, make it. No. It, 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 it he, he just no. wasn't, right? No. Yeah, he wasn't a white guy with blue eyes. If you read the description, he had bronze feet and, and he had curly, tight curly hair. I mean, so clearly you're talking about somebody that looks like they come from that region, which really is the northern tip of Africa, a.k.a. Arabia in that region. And I've been there, of course, now dozens of times. I mean, all those people, the people who are homegrown, they all look the same. Matter of fact, when I go there, they go, you my brother, you my brother. <laughs> you know? I say they want to sell me something. Of course, I'm your brother oh, now. But, oh, yeah, but the of point, course. Of course. <laughs> but the point, <laughs> the point is, you get it. I mean, obviously, he wasn't a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. But that's a depiction that took hold and took root and has been burnt into the minds. What a great marketing campaign. I mean, you want to talk about applied neuroscience that that image is burnt into the brains of people before they even conceived. When they come out of the womb, they're looking for that image. So they did a great marketing and propaganda campaign with that image. They burnt it into the brains of people so deeply it's embedded in our DNA. Well, I mean, it's I mean, look at Santa Claus. I mean, the mm -hmm. image of Santa Claus was basically a marketing campaign from Coca-Cola. And that's the Santa Claus we all know and love. You know, that's the image. The, you know, the jolly yeah. old man with the white, you know, the, with the with the big white beard. And that was just an image created by Coca-Cola. Am I am I wrong with that? But that's but that's now propagated. So now that is the image of, quote unquote, St. Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It started off in, the, in actually in the UK with a gentleman and then Coca-Cola kind of adopted it. it and then enhanced it to what they're liking the way they wanted it to be. A chubby guy it was firstly a skinny guy. But it, they adopted it. They enhanced it to what they wanted it to be. But it took hold again. Like you said, it's great. It's great uh, marketing, great propaganda, subliminal information, subliminal messages and teachings. And it, it just gets birthed into the into the genome and it passes on from generation to generation. Same thing happened with this Jesus figure. His name isn't even Jesus. His name was Yeshua. Yeshua. Yeshua okay? yeah. 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 That's the actual name. And so, but again, Jesus, the J is a new letter. It didn't even exist until recently. I mean, you know, so we're talking about, okay, what is really the name? Isus. When we look into the root word of that and you go back into some of the ancient tongues, you find out it's hail Zeus. So people that are calling on the name of Jesus all the time, they're calling for help from Zeus, which is actually uh, a converted name from the Sumerian pantheon. So they're calling on Enlil is what they're calling calling on they're not calling on any son of the creator of the universe and this is why a lot of prayers don't actually work people don't understand the power of speech and then calling on names and, and the cymatic frequencies they create then when you're completely ignorant to what's what you're really saying it's no wonder why billions of prayers go up every single day all around the world but then again look at the state of the world on a daily basis you can clearly see that uh, if somebody has a positive outcome, more than likely it's just luck. You know, and I know this conversation will probably be upsetting to some. And look, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic. I've said I've been a recovering Catholic for quite some time. So I, I lived and breathed this. Went to Catholic school, had the nuns, the whole ball of wax. Um, and I just hope that this conversation just sparks an interest to investigate it for yourself. Nothing that we're saying here is not 
investigatable on their own, on your own, and you can go out and look yeah. and, and and read. I mean, just go even go to Wikipedia for God's sakes. You just read about the 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 Council of Nicaea. I mean, you just start reading it on Wikipedia, which isn't the perfect you know research right. thing, but still basics on that. You're like, oh wait a minute, this this is really what happened. Like this is oh so. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, oh, so the Bible is not God's word. It was a bunch of dudes that got together and left out stuff like the book of Enoch, left out other things because yes. it didn't kind of work in there. The concept of reincarnation were left out because that doesn't work. Because if you think you can come back, I really yep. can't control you as easily, you know, yep. all these little ideas, but you just have to do your own research. I hope this sparks a little bit of, of uh, interest for people to do and, so. And I want to add one thing to this before we go on too. I want people to understand I'm not an atheist. I believe in a creator of the universe Yeah. because the quantum physics proves that we're living inside of a creation. There's no way to dispute that. There's no way to doubt it. We're living in a programmed uh, holographic light matrix. That is a method of use for this creation, but we are in this. It's created by an entity and believe that there is a God. I don't. I, I'm, I'm not. I just believe that the biblical version is not specifically talking about the creator of the universe. I believe those are the words of men about men that have manipulated it to be God. And actually, the word God in the Bible is mistranslated by accident on purpose. The original root word for that is gods with an S. And everywhere where you see God singular is actually supposed to have an S on the end. So there's so much going on. There's been tainted so much by man, uh, you know, but but I do believe that there is a God. But again, you have to research everything that you believe in, especially if you're looking for this information to carry you into eternity. You should know every little tiny detail about it. You shouldn't just take it point in fact from somebody standing at a pulpit. You should be the expert on it yourself. After right. all, it is your own eternity. Right, obviously. Um, and, and then also the, you know, the problem that a lot of people have with just what you just said is that like, well, my parents told me and that nice gentleman who's my priest told me and, you know, my whole family. Go, yeah. Listen, at the end of the day, investigate for yourself and what makes what connects you better to to the creator. If going to church every day with with a community to pray to a creator that works for you, God bless. It's not hurting anybody else. Hey man, do do you? But if you are interested a little bit in these ideas, try to investigate them yourself because it might not be pleasant. It wasn't for me when I first started going down these roads. I mean, when I was in my twenties, I started reading. You know, when I started reading Indian philosophies and um, just going around the world and just started listening to other religions, I'm like, well, they all can't be right and they all can't be wrong. Like there has to be something yeah. here. And that's started the journey where I'm at today. But I hope that people yeah. um, take that, that we're not just bashing the Catholic church, though it is bashable um, for a lot of the, the horrors that it has done in, in, in its existence. Um, I just want you to kind of realize what ha is really going on and shows like this and this information, the work you're doing, the work I'm doing is putting this information out there. So people could just start going, Hmm. And we're, by the way, we're not starting a revolution. People are leaving the church in droves. I mean, the whole priest thing with the abuse. And I mean, mm -hmm. it, they have a problem. And I don't think in, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Do you think they'll be around in two, 300 years? You know, is it? it, it I seriously doubt it. No, no, they're, they're not. They can't be. Listen, there's too much. They've paid billions of dollars in settlements, billions in settlements for uh, pedophilia and mm -hmm. sexual uh, abuse. You you can't persist 
along that path. Um, you know, and so <laughs> at the rate that they're going with what they're doing, they they can't persist too much longer. They still, however, right now hold a lot of power. I mean, even the governments of the world contact the Vatican before they go to war. A lot of people don't even know this. They mm. contact to speak to the black pope, not a black man, but a black pope. He wears the black garment. OK, he's called a super Jesuit. With a sworn oath, a very special sworn oath that I've posted online many times. Maybe if we have time, one, another time we can read the entire oath that they have to read. Mm -hmm. It's pretty dark. It's a mm -hmm. pretty dark oath. And it comes directly from their, their information. So it's not fabricated or somebody made it up online. And what's interesting is the, the governments of the world, the superpowers of the world, they contact and get approval for the war from the super Jesuit Black Pope. Think about that kind of power. Think mm -hmm. about that level of power. People don't even know a black pope exists. They don't even know what a black pope is. But when you start looking it up and then research the oath that's taken, it is so dark, it actually it'll make you feel sick on the inside. That's how dark it is. Now, let me ask you, we've talked a little bit about uh, the, the Great Pyramids and Egypt, Egypt's uh temples and pyramids and things like that. Before we dive into a little bit more of that, have you studied anything in India? The temples and because that is the temples and the archaeological sites in India are not talked about that much in these conversations. It's always it's always Mesoamerica, it's always uh you know uh, great pyramids, but even pyramids in Japan, in China, in other areas, go back to Tepe obviously now but generally speaking, I don't hear a lot of conversations about India, but they have some remarkable temples, oh, archaeological sites, information in those temples. How they made some of those things is absolutely insane. So what information do you have about the Hindu or the Hindu temples or Indian temples and cities and archaeological? Yeah, I'm doing an amazing. I have a new TV show coming out called Anunnaki History on Forbidden Knowledge TV. Mm -hmm. And we're just in the beginning stages of filming. And one of the things that I'm doing in one of my episodes is I'm tying together uh, the, the Kailash temples of India. The Kailash temple is literally a mountain that's carved from the outside going in. Oh, yeah. Okay? That's gorgeous. And so as oh, yeah. you start from the outside, if the, if the first cut is off by one millimeter, you can't finish the structure to perfection. You can't finish the incredible openings and the reliefs and all the incredible designs mm -hmm. on the inner walls and the perfectly square. You can't do it. And so this is this is evidence of some type of either super guided laser technique or whatever it is. But I'm going to document them. I'm going to look for the tool marks and I'm going to compare the Kailash temples to Petra Jordan, to Abu Simbel in Egypt, to uh, the Lalibela temples of Africa. They're all made with the same exact cutting technique and the same exact, I believe, cutting tool. Uh, and and any single one of those structures, you can't be one millimeter off when you start the first cut. And so I'm going to be documenting that and talking about that. But the, these temples in India are just, they're mind-blowing how they're created. The incredible attention to detail uh, from a lot of the carved rock, <clears throat> carved rock and a lot of the reliefs. Um, you know, again, these are, uh, in, in my personal opinion, some of them go back thousands of years. And I believe they're directly related to these Anunnaki people who created this Atlantean civilization. Depending on where they were on, in the world, 
They they had their own particular style, same construction technique, but their own style and look of how the reliefs and how the design work would go. And uh, and I believe that uh, India was a location where they definitely walked walked amongst men uh, and they built some some of the most incredible structures that exist on the planet. Like you said, hardly ever talked about. But I'm going there uh, next year to document these and uh, and pull the whole thing together and connect the dots. What is interesting about the 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 sites that you're talking about, I know exactly which one you're talking about. And for people listening, it's literally imagine you built a temple, and, and, and temple is not even a word I would use for these things, and you carved it out of a mountain as one solid piece. So it's a solid piece. So I, I, I got to go see the David. That was one solid piece of marble he made the David out of. Mm. Okay? And that's impressive as hell. I mean, you mm-hmm. sit in front of the David and you go, Jesus, it's insane. Yeah. Now do that with a mountain and that every little thing has to be cut or carved perfectly because if you, you know, like some parts inside the temple, because there's, you can walk inside these structures that have been carved out yeah. of the, of, of the mountain. Imagine, I'm just trying to think, okay, so a dude starts carving up here and starts chiseling there and it's all perfect. And when they go inside, they start chiseling and they didn't go too far and bust a hole through the roof or anything like that. It's all perfect. And it looks, we couldn't do that today if we even tried. Everyone always talks about, can we build the pyramids today? You know, could you? I don't know, probably not the way they did it, not with that precise, not that that kind of precise engineering, but this is literally impossible. Like this is not even there's no technology today. Would you agree there's like exist. you could argue you can maybe try to lift some 20 tons, 80 ton blocks and granite and you might be able to do the pyramids and that's a big if. But this stuff absolutely and it's not just one of them. There Yeah, I know. All over the day. It's a whole complex. It's a whole complex. Yes. <laughs> a bunch of them. I mean, and it's like they did it because it was easy. You see? They did right. this because it was easy. Can you imagine the excavation process in today's world? How much mass of rock and stone needs to be excavated? Right. And where is it now? Just that in itself is a mind-boggling paradigm. But but they were able to do it anyway. They were able to do it very easily. So yeah, I'm going to be going there to document uh, these th- these temples, these ancient structures, and connect the dots between the same type of construction techniques used used around the world. Uh, in, in my new TV series, it's going to be an amazing series. People have to watch it. Anunnaki history is coming very soon. And is that in Petra and Jordan, which was, if I'm not mistaken, they used Petra in Last Crusade, right? Uh, Indiana yeah. Jones and Last Crusade when they go in to go get the uh, the Holy Grail, um, yeah. <laughs> that is Petra. So for everybody mm-hmm. listening, that's what Petra is. That also is carved out of a mountain, right? Yes, correct. Carved out of a mountain. Again, you cannot be off one millimeter when you start your first cut, and you have to have precision because the most important thing about you said these places, these these structures have rooms and openings. So now you have to really understand the material that you're working with. And you have to understand uh, uh, gravity, weight, and stressors. You have to understand this because if you don't, now you're at a risk of collapse. So you really have to have advanced construction knowledge and an advanced knowledge of the material you're working on. How much weight and pressure can a particular beam handle? How much weight is dispersed over the over the over the area 
up a particular amount of mass when you create an opening. All of this has to be like calculated, otherwise it will collapse and you've done it for nothing. So, oh man, it's, it's It's insane. And then also where did the rock go? Where did the rock go? Because, <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, where did the rock go? Like they pulled all, and this is, like you said, yeah. there's a complex of this. So arguably, mm-hmm. let's say they did it with the techniques that we have today, which would be insane. Yeah. You basically would have to have thousands of Michelangelo's running around carving perfectly all the time. (laughs) Where did the rock go? That, that mass amount of rock, they didn't ship it somewhere. It is non-existent anywhere within hundreds of miles of those areas because the rocks would have had to have been, they didn't pulverize them to dirt. And if they did, that's impressive. (laughs) But but where's the, like, where are the rocks? So I was, when I was in the cat, when I was in the catacombs in Naples, you're talking about because it's underground and it's i think it was roman they started off roman and like it it, it had multiple generations of people trying to like build upon them and you look inside it's beautiful but it's very crude i mean nothing is perfect there's just holes where bodies were going the roof is like you know more natural it's not like perfect it's very crude and that's we're talking about a thousand to twelve hundred years ago extremely crude mm-hmm. kind of technology yeah. to build this stuff. That was literally somebody just going in and just chiseling stuff out. And I'm, right. I'd assume that there might've even been a little bit of opening there be, to begin with, if there was a cave down there anyway, and they started building of off course. of that. Yeah. Cause it's not like a rock. Yeah. Like, so what they're, what we're talking about is I just can't even understand how they even begin to do it. What, what do you, in yeah. your wildest dreams, how do you think it was, mm-hmm. it was done? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery and I saw the Golo commercial and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. And now back to the show. Well, I think that they've discovered a way to maybe even compress atoms to the point where they can remove empty space in between atoms. And so imagine if you, uh, of course, we know that atoms are 99.999% empty space. And so to give you an idea what that means, I can take all 8 billion people on Earth and remove the empty space within their atoms. I can fit everyone into one sugar cube. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's how empty space is in between atoms. Now imagine you have the capability of removing the empty space in the atoms in those stones and those rocks, where instead of having to excavate billions of tons of rocks or hundreds of thousands of tons of st- rocks, you now just remove the empty space in their atoms and you smash them down into absolute tiny particles of dust that are still going to be heavy because the mass will still be there, 
but the size will be very much smaller. And then you can use some other type of advanced technology to move them out of there or maybe just leave them there. Who knows? But that's that may be one way that they did it. They have some type of a super sophisticated laser guided cutting tool, which is already set in some type of a program that's already in some type of a computing system that has a, a pre-done layout or schematic uh, diagram, a blueprint for this carving and this cutting. And it goes in as some type of a machine that goes in and does all this incredible work. Uh, and then everything else is just the excavation is just collapsed into, you know, particles, heavy, heavy, heavy particles, but still particles nonetheless. That's that's how I think they possibly have done it. I think that might be even the future of waste management. Imagine instead of having piles and piles of garbage, you just utilize the capability of removing the empty space in the atoms and you can turn 100,000 tons of garbage into a couple of crumbs. So it's almost like a 3D printing technology, but not printing, carving, a 3D carving technology almost. Right. Right. Where, exactly. Exactly. Where they're building yeah. it out. That's, that is absolutely fascinating. Now, let me ask you, though, how do you think that this technology or th these temples in India, because you're doing this show, these temples and, and sites in India are connected to the pyramids, to Petra and these other, and, and even Mesoamerica. Yeah. One of the biggest connections you can make with the, the, the temples and located in India and literally all around the world, when you look at the Earth's magnetic field grid, the map that show you of where the, all the, the, the magnetic field whips out of the Earth mm -hmm. and creates the magnetosphere, you'll find that in the places where a lot of these magnetic fields come out of the Earth and you overlay another map on top that shows you where a lot of the temples and pyramids are located, all of a sudden, you find that like 90% of them are on top of these magnetic fields. So they're connected by this magnetism. Somehow they know or they knew where these magnetic fields were and they harnessed the power, the natural power of the earth itself in the construction process. So in some way, it was so important that they harness the magnetic field potentially to find a way to reverse the spin of the atom, to maybe reduce gravity of some of the stones. There's something where these magnetic fields worked along with their technology, which we don't have access to, which is now long gone. But I think their technology worked along with Earth's magnetic field because you have these super megalithic structures directly on top of them. Even look at Lebanon at Baalbek. I mean, you have super megalithic stones up on top of other megalithic stones. And the only way to do it is some type of anti-gravity or materialization technique but again, directly on top of a huge magnetic field. So those Indian, those the, the pyramids in India are connected to the others by magnetic fields. Now, I have to ask you this, because this is something else I, I observed when I was in France and when I was in Italy, is in almost every city I went to, there was an Egyptian obelisk in the center of town. And I'm not talking, I mean, yeah. in the Vatican, there's one. In Rome, there's one. There's many in Rome. Uh, I went to Bologna. There was one in Bologna. There was one in Modena. Like you just start, and I'm like in France. I was just driving around Paris. There's one. And I'm just in the. Why are there Egyptian obelisks everywhere? And we even have an obelisk, which is uh, the great one in um, uh, Washington Monument, is a giant obelisk yeah. in our major city. What is it mm -hmm. about these things that are there? They're, the obelisks are remnants of an ancient golden age that existed where a lot of wisdom and knowledge uh, from the brick masons was passed down. 
And they are well aware of this. And a lot of the knowledge that was passed down from the purpose and use of the obelisk, all the additional construction in those ancient cities was passed down to brick masons over generations. And those people ended up becoming parts of governments that and that they were overseeing construction for new cities and so forth. And so it's a paying oath to the to the ancient brick masons and the knowledge and wisdom that they've shared and, and saved and, he- and held back from the general public over the years. The actual obelisks were wireless receivers for wireless electricity and even frequencies for sound. And so the Great Pyramid, for example, would generate this wireless electricity, which which would shoot up out of the apex. The obelisk, they're all crystal granite. They would capture this ambient electricity from the atmosphere. And then if you had something called a jed, which you see all over Egypt and even in some other cultures like in Afghanistan, you can find the jed etched into stone as well. Uh, and also in um, Turkey, what happens is this jet would capture this ambient electricity. It looks like a Tesla coil. And then it, there's a cord coming out of it, which connect to their gold electroplating devices. We know they had electricity and they use them with the jet because depictions of it are all over Egypt. And the gold plating is all over Egypt from ancient times. So we know they use electric gold plating. So it's not even a mystery. Of course, they had light bulbs which are etched into stone in the crypt located under underneath the Temple of Dendera and a few other places as well. So they had, the, but they all, all of, the, of those depictions are connected to a jet. The jet would receive wireless electricity uh, from these obelisks. So these obelisks were pillars of, um, of, of power. And so they have now taken that as an archetype and a metaphor to put that in their locations and say, hey, we have power because that's what they did in ancient times. They're showcasing their power. If you look at Teotihuacan in Mexico, the, the, the pyramid complex there, which mimics identical to Giza Plateau in Africa and Egypt, you find out that you take a map of Rome's courtyard and overlay it over Teotihuacan, it's a perfect match. The courtyard is a perfect match to the courtyard of Teotihuacan right up until you get too close to the pyramid of the moon, the pyramid of the sun is behind it. And so... Then you have the obelisk directly in the center. So even the uh, Roman, uh, the, uh, the the Vatican, they mimicked even the courtyard of Teotihuacan located all, all the way in Mexico, and they put an obelisk dead center. So they know what they're doing. They're just they're they're paying oath to tribute to the ancient past and the ancient knowledge of the brick masons, and they're showcasing these obelisks as a symbol of power. Interesting. Very interesting. And another thing that was interesting is, as doing some more research into the Great Pyramid, not only have they never found any um, hieroglyphs in the Great Pyramid, so the whole tomb thing is a ridiculous idea that has perpetrated from a couple of white guys from the 1800s who said this must be this must be where the, the tomb, but even though they've never found anybody dead there or any any hieroglyphs, I don't know about you, if I would have built a pyramid, the Egyptians were uh, they love talking about their stuff. And their hieroglyphs are everywhere, but yet in the, in the pyramids, none. So that's interesting. But I was I was looking at the other day is inside the pyramids, how did they light while they worked inside the pyramids? Because there is no fire soot remnants like there are in other temples that they, you could obviously see that they use fire to light the way. There's nothing like that in the Great Pyramid, correct? Nothing like that. As a matter of fact, even in the other temples, the fire and soot you see, that came from the Coptic Christians long after, the ones that were hiding from the Romans. 
They mm-hmm. were hiding from Romans. So if you go back prior, because they've been doing a, a reclamation project to clean up a lot of that soot, when you when they clean it off, you discover that in ancient times when that stuff was originally built, they didn't even have soot then. So they were actually using light bulbs in all these ancient temples. And in the Great Pyramid, of course, there's no evidence of any soot whatsoever. So we know that they had harnessed the power of electricity. The Great Pyramid itself is built on a base of magnetized crystal granite. Now, when the Nile used to run up close to the pyramid complex in ancient times, that water would be, was channeling to these aquifers directly underneath the Great Pyramid. When you have running water moving underneath magnetized crystal granite, you create something called physiostatic electricity. The ions would then push up in through the granite, up into the chamber. Some of the water would push down into the queen's chamber, which was an electrolysis device which extracted hydrogen atoms. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The rest of the ions would get pushed up through the grand gallery where there were resonating rods and slots are still there for those rods to push it up into the king's chamber. The king's chamber is magnetized crystal granite, a gigantic block wall with a two to one ratio on the inside. And in that room is a stone box, which they were claiming as a sarcophagus. I can't even fit in that box. Okay. If I get <laughs> right. in that box, my knees have to be bent. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's not a sarcophagus, but that box is the same exact dimensions as the Ark of the Covenant. That's what sat in that box. And that mm-hmm. would step the power up one more level and send the energy through uh, the top. Uh, plank of uh, uh, stop top of that that stone, which was a crystal granite uh, uh, top, and it would go up through the apex, which was gold, and that would send wireless electricity out into the atmosphere, then to be captured by the obelisk. And so the other part, the queen's chamber, would extract the hydrogen atoms from the water, and then mm-hmm. shoot the hydrogen beams through the shafts that were pointed at star systems, Aldebaran, Sirius, mm-hmm. uh, Orion, and so forth, on different alignments. Why hydrogen? How do we communicate with, how do we try to communicate with aliens today? We transmit information piggybacked on the hydrogen frequency. Why do we do that? Because hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. And so that's how we feel that we can communicate with ET. Well, they were already doing this in the ancient past. And why were they doing it? Because on specific alignments with those shafts, they were sending information and updates about the breakaway civilization here on Earth directly through the pyramid shafts. So the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, was a multifunctional stone computer and also a power generator. If if in today's world, um, if everybody left the planet today and a tribe found a cell tower and it is the it is the biggest thing for 200 miles and they go, well, what do you think this was for? What do you think these people used it for? If we told you, oh, it's, well, we bounced, you know, the thing we talked on the phone and there's this thing and we come, oh, we also did internet. What's the internet? It seems insane to somebody. So what you're saying could sound insane, but yet try to explain a cell tower or an electricity grid to mm-hmm. a Bushman who has never exactly. experienced any of this. It's not yeah. as far fetched, you know. It's all we're all look. They're all hypotheses. You don't know exactly if that happened because you weren't there. But exactly. this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure things out. Everyone's trying to figure things out. What happened yeah. back in the day? There's another yeah. thing I discovered uh, in my in my journeys, which is: Have you heard of the labyrinth? 
in Egypt? There's supposedly um, a giant underground labyrinth in Egypt that they yes that was supposed to be like there's talks about it there's history about it that people would go down underneath mm -hmm. it it was supposedly a massive underground yeah. thing and they found some mm -hmm. remnants of it uh, I don't know where in Egypt but they've started to find some of it but it was massive do you know a little bit about that I wrote about it in my book Companion of the Emerald Tablets. Okay. And so this huge underground labyrinth exists exactly what Thoth the Atlanteans said it did. It starts actually underneath the Great Pyramid and it spreads out for miles underneath the Giza Plateau. It goes on for miles. And some of those tunnels go all the way from Giza all the way to the Pyramid of Ur, the Ziggurat of Ur in Iraq. Mm -hmm. You can go from Giza to Iraq underground. Okay. This labyrinth is massive, and in order to build it and know where you're going, you have to have some ideal concept of, uh, from an aerial view of mapping and understanding angles and degrees, uh, and, and of course, again, knowing the material so you don't so you can prevent a collapse. But he calls it the beginning part of this labyrinth is called the Halls of Amenti, just one of many Halls of Amenti that actually exist, and they discovered these halls that connect to this labyrinth. Uh, years ago, which I, I have, a, they have a sketched image of them, and I have it in my book, Compendium of the Emerald Tablet. So, this has been this has existed for eons. This this underground labyrinth of of passageways and tunnels that lead out. I mean, for miles and miles, it's incredible underneath the sands of Giza. Is this is? Do you think that these were built after the youngest the younger Dryas? Uh, collapse of or the collapse of Atlantis and whoever started to build this, they're like, it, we, look, we can't have this happen again. So let's build this underground city. So if something does happen up top, at least we have a fighting chance underneath. Is that what do you think that's yeah. what the case? Oh, no doubt. I believe it definitely was built uh, after the younger Dryas. They may have even knew the younger Dryas, or they may have knew, known about this uh, pre knowledge of this strike, this asteroid strike that was going to come and hit and uh, and just and create a type of a. Uh, uh, a catastrophe, an extinction level event was coming and may have started building these underground tunnels from then because all of a sudden in Turkey around the same time frame, you have Darren Kuyu, 30,000 people underground, 14,000 ventilation right. shafts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have other areas throughout Turkey going all the way down into the Middle East where the people have built these underground shelters that can hold thousands of people underground with ventilation shafts all over the place. You have the labyrinth underneath Giza that goes out for miles and miles where a person can literally travel from one place to the other without ever coming above ground. And then in the Americas, you have the, the story from the uh, indigenous tribes of the Americas about these people who took them into these underground caverns to hide from uh, something. They never specified exactly what it was, but to hide from something and it saved their lives. So it must have been a part of this catastrophe that happened. But all of a sudden, all around the world around the same time, on, on several continents, you can see that people were going underground, almost a foreknowledge of this global catastrophic, uh, catastrophic event coming. The what are the materials that they're using uh, under underneath the in, in this underground uh, complex in Egypt? Is it what kind of materials were they, were they carving out there? It's the stone that's already down there. So whatever that sandstone or whatever's down there, they understood it. They know how to. And what's interesting is when you look at some of like if you go into the Serapium, which I call Enki's Halls of Amenti. Right, that's underground in Saqqara. When you see the perfect archways that are carved out and the alcoves that are carved out, again, this is almost like Kailash. Whatever they did, they knew how to cut this stone in a certain way 
where they almost vitrified it as they cut. So as they're cutting this tunnel underground, they're vitrifying it at the same time with high levels of heat, which re which reduces the amount of extraction of mass and brick and rock that need to be taken out because you're actually searing and burning it as you bore through at the same time. And it makes these perfect cuts, which are evident at the uh, Serapium in Saqqara. So I think they utilize the same exact technique. They look like giant halls. And when you go look at the image that was uh, sketched from the one that was discovered under Giza, gigantic halls, perfectly arched underground with the existing rock that's already there. The the idea of a lot of a lot of people talk about the ideas of these. Oh, the, you know, they moved these giant twenty ton, forty ton, sixty ton uh, monolithic struck you know blocks using horses or using people and using things and it, 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 it's laughable it is laughable but you could argue it but once you get to these obelisks that were 120 150 tons wood doesn't work anymore it just it just doesn't no. it can't it can't you can't move those things anymore at that yeah. point with wood and pulleys it, it it's just not capable of being done anymore so yeah i've looked i've also studied the other these these um kind of like these uh, junkyards of <laughs> of like obelisks that never left uh out of the ground yeah. and big chunks of other things that just didn't make it but the drill marks mm -hmm. and the tool marks yes. and are so precise they look like something that we have Today, in 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 some areas, you just like I don't even know if we had something like this. Per you could even see where the like the <laughs> the granite or the rock is cut, and they're like, "Oops!" and they pulled back out, and there's like a an oh, I sorry, I, I cut the wrong area. What do you what do you think about yep. that? Oh, they had high tech tools back then that were capable of cutting solid granite, uh, and they had some type of laser etching tool to etch all the hieroglyphs on them as well, because everyone is, ex is is extremely exquisite and perfect. Like there's no oh my accidentally, they're perfect. And then the story that they want to tell you is that they took this you know ten ton thing and they dumped it on the back of a boat and took it down the now. No, no, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They utilize some form of levitation or anti-gravity or something that helped to reduce the weight of the object. And what's interesting is, so every time I travel to these places, I take an old-fashioned compass. And when you get up to certain areas of the stone, all of a sudden, the needle starts to move. You're like, well, why is the needle moving? Why isn't the needle? I'm not changing my direction. But when I get close to this stone, the needle starts to move. There's something has been done to the atoms in this stone to reverse the polarity. And so they have had they had to have some type of a, whether it was a frequency technology, a magnetic mm. technology. In some way, they altered the atomic structure in the stone, possibly hypothesis, to get them to be lighter, to be able to maneuver them around, maybe not completely weightless, but in some way that allowed them to move them without breaking them all over the place. I've heard you talk in other conversations about the healing properties of the temples of Egypt. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Listen, there's a temple there, which we're trying to find. I saw it in 2014, and we haven't been able to get the name, but there's many of them that you can go to. 
when you walk through these uh, particular hallways, they're very narrow hallways with gigantic megalithic crystal granite on both sides. And as you walk through these hallways, you touch the walls with both hands as you walk down the hallway. People would be lined up behind you doing the same thing. And you would be treated by electromagnetism into your body from these gigantic slabs, these megalithic slabs of granite, magnetized crystal granite. Uh, and in one of these locations, so many people had gone down that hallway with their hands and their fingertips on the walls to the point where it, you can see the grooves of fingers in solid granite. That's how many thousands of over thousands of years have walked down these hallways. So I'm looking forward to finding that exact location where the most impressive one was located when I go in October and documenting it and filming it and getting bringing back all that knowledge and information to the people when I get back in, in, in the end of October. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for doing that work, my yeah. friend. I mean, it's it's oh, thank it's, you. it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. And you were saying uh, a second ago about the perfection of some of these carvings uh, in these statues, and and in the in the Vatican Museum, I saw some large, fairly large Egyptian statues, like where the the pharaoh's face and stuff, and it's carved out of I don't know, it's black. It was a black stone, which I heard was even harder than granite. It's like some on the hardness scale, it's like nine. Diamonds are ten. It's like at a nine. Yeah, probably and, diorite or andesite. Yeah, something like that. It was it was the black. It was the black stone. And mm. the the face of these are so perfectly balanced. Yeah. They look like literally identical, left to the right. You can interchange mm. them. It looks like a complete mirror. That isn't capable of being done by hand. Even Michelangelo yeah. couldn't do that. It's just the the level of precision there. Ha it's mathematical. We're talking about mm -hmm. centimeters and smaller than centimeters yeah. on both. So it looks like it's something you could cut it in half, and it's a mirror of yeah. itself. How mm -hmm. can anyone even yeah. conceive to think that that was done by hand? And you look at the work, you just like. The, the the way the the dress or the whatever they were wearing the skirts or the um the the, the adorning the the things that they were wearing so much detail so yeah. how man how you know and, it's, and again it's, it's so exquisite when you, no 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 and, but I think again, I and say, again go ahead go ahead <laughs> I was gonna say you can only hypothesize that you know a couple ways one obviously is some type of a a laser guided tool that was already had a computer program in it to etch a specific face. If it's not a laser, maybe it's something similar to a laser. Mm -hmm. Or could it also be a special technique that they use to melt rock and make it molten without destroying the fundamental basis or the chemical compound of it, and then put it into a mold, let it, let it cure, and then, boom, you pop it out of the mold, and now here you have it, right? So there's a couple different, uh, you know, we could throw around different hypotheses, but we know for a fact it definitely wasn't done by hand. Yeah, because, I mean, again, s s you know, seeing all of these masterworks by uh, Michelangelo and da Vinci and, and all, you start seeing the the work, the craftsmanship of all of these Renaissance yep. sculptors. They're stunning work, man. I mean, it's, yep. it is remarkable work, but you're, they're not perfect. They're not meant to be perfect. It's it, it exactly. Is, it's not meant to be this kind of almost computer esque 
style of sculpture. It's a more naturalistic sculpture. Like, you know, you and I don't have perfectly symmetrical faces. Your eye, the left eye is right. not exactly where your right eye is. None of, no, very few people do. Um, so it's, it's not perfect. Nature is not like that. So to, to yeah. show that in these things are remarkable. Uh, one last question, because I know you got to go and I got thousands of questions and you and I could talk for hours and hours, brother. I heard somewhere that it is, let me know, is Shakespeare connected to uh, the, the, the pyramids of Giza in one way, shape or form yeah. with his work? Have you heard anything about that? I've heard about it, but I never really dug into it deeply. Uh, that's something, an additional thing for me to look into a research. I haven't dug into his information uh, quite as deeply with that connection to find out exactly specifically what it was. Um, it would be very interesting to find out, though, because, I mean, obviously he's um, he, he came about year, thousands of years after uh, the pyramids and so forth. So I've got to really look into it, though. And then how about um, Da Vinci? Da Vinci's artwork. How is it connected? Is there a connection to ancient Egypt's wisdom and, and co- yeah. I mean, because obviously well, da, Vinci da Vinci encoded encoded everything. <laughs> oh, he encoded everything. This guy was an absolute. He might be an alien. <laughs> I mean, guy, he was at a whole other level. Man, another level. He was so far ahead of his time. He had maybe he came from the future. I don't know, but uh, when you look at the Vitruvian Man and some of the drawings and sketchings that he's done. It lays out a perfect, the Vitruvian, for example, when you circle the square and you create a flower of life pattern inside of there, you get the dimensions of the Great Pyramid at Giza. But not only that, you begin to get the dimensions and angles of most of the pyramids around the entire planet. And where the lines intersect and cross for the Vesuvius, you then know if you make it into a global scale, you scale up to a global size, that one image, all of a sudden you start to find temples and pyramids. Even across the oceans where some things, cities have sunk and so forth, you find remnants of civilizations on that grid. So it's pretty crazy. You can extract that directly from the Vitruvian man. So it's, it's just like mind-blowing, the connection. I don't think it's a coincidence. And then let's not even get into the the paintings of like the Last Supper and um, and, yeah. and just the, the – the, you look at the Last Supper, the um, the perfection in the art. And how the angles all—you're just like it's at a completely other level. I did get to see the Mona Lisa for five seconds before the crowd was insane. There, um, by the yeah. way, the Louvre—the Louvre, the worst museum mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't stand the Louvre. It's like you can't yeah. see anything. It's 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 insane. Yeah. It's it's horrible. Yeah. But I did get to see it's the not Mona as Lisa. Nice as Right, absolutely not. But the Mona Lisa, you see that you're like, okay, I see, I see what the hoopla is about, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's something there. I don't know what it is. The mm-hmm. perfection of it is. It's a pretty remarkable piece, yeah. without question. Yep. Author Billy Carson. Now I've been following Billy for some time now, and his research into ancient civilizations is just remarkable. He is an MIT alumni with a certificate of science emphasizing in neuroscience. He has written multiple best-selling books, including one of the best books I've ever read on the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. And Billy and I had a wonderful conversation about ancient civilizations, spirituality, what happens to the soul, and so much more. So let's dive in. Did they, did the cultures of the Mayans and the Aztecs come across these monolithic things because it seems to me that 
it's very difficult to connect a culture that can build such beautiful and highly sophisticated structures and then be cutting hearts out and sacrificing right. them off the edge it doesn't connect what your no. what your uh, what your what thinks doesn't connect at all and initially when i started studying the minds about 15 years ago mm -hmm. i was like man this is really bizarre like these incredible structures are here i know that it takes a high level of understanding and technology and consciousness to be able to construct and become a master architect to even design and build out these things but at the same time i'm studying how they would sacrifice virgins into wells hoping that it would rain and they were cutting people's hearts out and People would, you know, play this ball game. And if you won the game, they'd cut your head off. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. This, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And so they would even kill kids. They would like sacrifice children. And I'm like, something's not adding up. So I, when I went to uh, Chichen Itza and Teotihuacan, these areas for the second time in my life, I hired a homegrown guide. I got a guide, an archaeologist that I hired, not someone who went to the mainstream situation, but somebody who can give you the real facts. They brought me documentation that they actually teach in university in Mexico. And the Mayans actually arrived on site after the Teotihuacans and that the Mayans actually inherited what was already there. The Aztecs came even later than the Mayans. The Aztecs had a volcano erupt in their valley, destroyed their entire uh, you know, uh, town. They had to migrate out. They stumbled into Teotihuacan and kind of just moved in and took over. And so a lot of the knowledge was lost. Uh, and the Mayans and the Aztecs built absolutely nothing. Not to take away anything from them. They were still a great culture, but they inherited what was already there. When I then track backtracked the information to the Sumerian tablets, where you find out, that Thoth the Atlantean, who was ruling over the land of Kem, which is now called Egypt, he began to have some uh, some arguments and fights with his brother, Amun-Ra, and their father, Enki, said to Thoth, go to the other side, go go, <laughs> go to Mesoamerica and take some Almix with you. He took some Almix with him from Africa to Mesoamerica, and he and those Almix kickstarted and created the whole Teotihuacan civilization. Where he then he, over there he became known as several people Quetzalcoatl, uh, you know, uh, Kukulkan, Lord Pakal, and so forth and so on. But it's really all the same person, the same being. Veracocha, he's also known as Veracocha in different parts of Mesoamerica, but it's the same exact person, the feathered serpent. And him and the Olmecs kickstarted and built that entire civilization, which then at some point they just disappeared or left. And then the Mayans came in and inherited what was there already. You said the Olmecs. They are considered the original, uh, mysterious kind of people that were there prior to the Ma the, the Incas, the, the Mayans, yes. the Aztecs, the Olmecs. Who were the Olmecs? According to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Olmecs were these Africans that left and came across with, uh, they were stonemasons that came across with Thoth. He's also known as Dehudi or Jehudi in Africa. They came here with him. Long before the Mayans even arrived, long before Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, accidentally landed on a Caribbean island and so on. So these people were here so long ago. There's even records of them doing trade back and forth between here and Africa with the indigenous peoples that were here, too. So there and then it was even cross mating and cross breeding. So uh, they actually merged with some of the people that were here as well. So it's pretty interesting. There's a book, I believe it's called Before Columbus. 
and it has a big Almec head on it. And you can research research that. It, ha- it has a lot of great sources to document and prove that this culture had arrived here hundreds of years before the Mayans even, uh, you know, existed. Are we? T- yeah. When did they actually show up? What the timeline wise? And there's still even remnants of these Pleiadian hieroglyphs, which I've seen with my own eyes in Australia when I went there a few years ago. Out in the outback, I went. For, I went for a walk about in the outback with some Aboriginals. We went out and we saw these glyphs. And to, to date, nobody in the world has been able to decipher these hieroglyphs. But they have been dated five thousand years old, based on the patina inside the you know carvings of the glyphs. You can date that 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 organic material. They're five thousand years old. Pretty interesting. So um, now, fast forward to Atlantis. All of a sudden, these beings arrive here. They're called the Anunnaki. Right. The Anunnaki means those who from heaven came to earth. It's a generalized term, just like if you and I were to travel to another planet right now. And they say, hey, where are you guys from? We're going to say we're earthlings. Right. We're Boca not going to say. Raton. Right. Yeah. We're going to say Boca Raton, <laughs> a Floridian from Boca Raton. You know what I'm saying? We're just going to say we're earthlings. Right. So Anunnaki is a generalized term for people who don't understand or know what that term means. And that name has been used in the Enuma Elish and the Seven Tabs of Creation, the Atrahasis epic. The Bible, they call the Anak. It says, we were as grasshoppers in their eyesight. And so this terminology of the Anunnaki is well known. It's in the Torah. It's everywhere. It's a well-known name. It's not a fabricated or made-up name by Zachariah Sitchin. It's actually a real name in ancient text that you can actually find if you look for it. Mm-hmm. And so, but these were, they created a, a civilization. Now, the civilization that the Anunnaki built is called the Atlantean civilization. Now, Atlantis, according to Plato, Right. And, and, and what, the, what he's what he described is that described it as seems to have been this giant ring city, which would have been in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, Atlantis, Atlantic. And there's remnants of cities sunken in the Atlantic Ocean. We know this now just by basic oceanography. However, that ring city that was described was just one capital on Earth, one capital of many capitals, probably one of the most beautiful capital cities that existed on Earth, that ring city in the Atlantic Ocean, but not the only capital. There were people ruling in regions all over the planet, and Atlantis was just, this ring city of Atlantis was just one. There was At, at a time, there was a war that went on, disagreements happened, the Golden Age began to fall, and these beings, these advanced beings, started going to war against each other for control and domination of humans and resources on this planet and other planets as well in our solar system, one of them being the moon and Mars, and they actually had a battle. So this battle is also well recorded in Sumerian tablets tales. They had these wars that went on, and these wars extended from Earth to the moon all the way to Mars, hence why Mars is called the god of war. And this remnants and, and evidence of weapons-grade xenon in the atmosphere on Mars from the Mars Global Surveyor and in the soil from the actual science kits on the rovers. We know that there's weapons-grade xenon. Weapons-grade What? That's remnants of nuclear warfare that happened. So at some point in the ancient past, these beings went uh, to these, you know, these WMDs and they went to war against each other, destroying each other or attempting to destroy each other. But Atlantis was not just a ring city. It was a interplanetary civilization. And no matter where you are on Earth, we're all standing or sitting on top of Atlantis at this exact moment. That is absolutely fascinating. The and this war that you're talking about is very clearly stated in the Bhagavad Gita and in yes. the Vedic texts. 
I mean, specific, like literal specifics yeah. of you know uh, space, space, not space, but like aerial crafts, wars going mm-hmm. off, nuclear, yeah. uh, some sort of explosion. Uh, mm-hmm. What it, it's 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 been talked about. For it's highly detailed. They even tell you what the name of the weapons are. The names of the the Brahma Honda. They have the Brahma Honda weapon. You know, they have these weapons that once they're released, you can't even stop it. There's no way to deactivate it. They have this one weapon that can destroy any man on three worlds. They have, they had a weapon that can even destroy a planet. I mean, uh, these guys weren't sitting around 10,000 years ago and going, let's make a sci-fi movie, you know, like Star Trek or Star Wars. You know, know, we just got nothing to do today. So we're going to write a sci-fi movie and we're going to spend countless hours, you know, etching this stuff into stone tablets and, you know, it just didn't happen. This, they recorded what happened, I believe. And it's probably the closest to the truth we're going to get. There's always his story, but I think we're getting as close as we can possibly get in the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas. They talk about the Vamanas, the ships that used to fly, right? And they had the uh, the mercury-based engine, so they use a ferrofluid mm-hmm. vortex mercury-based right. engine to fly silently from place to place. They could take an accompaniment of men from Earth to the moon. Who's writing this in ancient times? These people knew what they were talking about. They even left behind flight plans and the designs of the Vamanas they used to fly in. So the evidence is fully abound. It's just that mainstream wants to ignore it. So they can keep a, a particular agenda and a mindset flowing through the main civilization, the main population, for the purposes of monetization and suppression of ancient technologies that the military and other private corporations are investigating and probably activating and utilizing in their own, uh, you know, for their own services. So yeah, I was going to say, what's the purpose of lying about all of this information? It doesn't make yeah. financial sense. I, I mean, just but you just kind of laid out a couple of the reasons, but. It's starting to get to the circumstantial evidence that is this kind of stuff that they kept tossing around, like, oh, that's no, no. But now things are coming up that you just you just can't ignore it. Gobekli Tepe just showed up uh, a little while yeah. ago. That's dated 13,000 <laughs> years. So that pushes the timeline back. Uh, mm-hmm. The work that Grant Hancock's doing. Uh, oh, man. I mean, he's he's leading the way. He's, as they say, yeah. the first one through the wall is the, is the bloodiest. And he's definitely yeah. that, no question. Oh, man. No doubt. <laughs> but so so in your opinion, how far back does the human story go? I believe it goes back, well, I'll put it this way, two two ways. The first way is this. The Anunnaki appeared to have arrived based on the reading of the tablets around 450,000 years ago. Now, that's significant because when they arrived here on this planet, they were creating a breakaway civilization with no intention of engaging uh, what we will call homo sapien or we weren't homo sapien yet we were it was our cousins some type of a hominid that was here we know the hominid was here because they state that the hominid was already here they said there was a being here there was already had their little communities and existences but we were at a certain level and they added their essence to us to genetically modify and create homo sapien sapien after many experiments however our cousins were already here so 450,000 years ago we were here. We weren't in trees acting like monkeys and, and you know, and eating bananas and all this kind of crazy stuff. This bilateral, bipedal version of a hominid, what we kind of almost look like now, existed already on this planet. Now, according to these tablets, they worked the creating canals and cities and so forth and mining for resources and everything else, developing a civilization for around 200,000 years 
to 250,000 years, roughly, before they almost went to war against each other because they themselves were tired of doing the work and the kings of Earth, Anu, Enki, and Enlil, were, they felt like they were forcing them to do this labor and they were tired and they complained that they needed a break and so they decided to go to war. This is in the Epic of Atrahasis. And so they went to South Africa to Adam's calendar where they found the oldest gold mines that exist, 200,000-year-old gold mines, and they encircled the campus and they began to get ready to go to war. And Enki had an idea, says, look, let us take the existing being on this planet and add our essence to them and get them to bear the load of the labor. So basically create a slave race, not from dust, not from actual, like, you know, the Bible says, you, you take some clay and wet clay and spit on it and blah, blah, blah. No, from actually from taking a being that's here already, genetically tinkering with it, making it, inserting a worship gene, which we know the gene for worship was inserted into the genome. We know that for a fact now through uh, genetic studies, and it can be turned on and it can also be turned off. We'll get them to worship us. They'll think we're God and they'll do the work just to be just to honor us. And they put them out there to do all the work and, and take the load away from the EGG, the working class Anunnaki. And that's how that initial war was kind of thwarted. And so that's what happened. You know, we we literally were re, uh, re-engineered to become a slave race on this planet. And this gospel of Holy 12, which, of course, was left out of the canonized Bible, talks about where he went. He went to go live in Egypt. So I said, let me hop on a plane and fly to Egypt. So I go to Egypt. <laughs> And I find the place that he lived in Coptic Cairo. And you can still go there till this very day. It's a shrine there inside of this. Now, it used to be the house, but now it's a church. It's a Coptic church, obviously. But the place where he slept and laid his head is still there, him and his mother. And their their names are engraved into the windowsill there as well. And it's kept very safe. So anyone from anywhere in the world with a passport can fly to the place where he actually slept as a child and a teenager. He then left from there and went up into Tibet to learn Qigong and Reiki healing and healing with the hands and energy, moving energy around the body and so forth. And that was confirmed by the Dalai Lama. And then he left from there and went to India to learn the mystic arts, teaching reincarnation all the way back into Egypt. And then when he got back to Egypt, this is when he's 32 years old, the Bible picks up, I call my son out of Egypt. That's what the exact phrase is in the Bible. And he comes out of Egypt, he appears in Jerusalem, riding in on the back of a donkey. So this is the, the whole missing era of his life that existed. It's not missing. It was purposefully left out to create this ideology and this dogma about who Jesus is and was. Now, more recently, they found the book of Jesus's wife, which is actually in the Harvard Seminary. So they believe now that he got married, most likely to Mary Magdalene. And most likely had children, which would be the Merovingian bloodline, which is probably still walking to earth till this very day. In the Sinai Bible, he never was crucified. So in the Sinai Bible predates the King James Version of the Bible. So I'm more likely to believe the older text is closer to the truth. So in my personal opinion, the crucifixion is about consciousness. Being born again and being baptized is having to do with raising your level of consciousness to a higher level. Nothing to do with flashing water, nothing to do with getting tied up to a cross and hung and so forth. I believe that those are all misinterpretations or maybe by accident or maybe on purpose, but they did it to manipulate the minds of the people. I think that the true message here is that we are here to save ourselves and that we are here to forgive ourselves and you can't move forward. You can't, you can't turn on the inner light inside of you and activate it until you learn how to forgive yourself.
it's it's remarkable, Billy, that I mean, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is it's stuff that there is historical, you know, records of. Uh, and it's not just like, hey, let's talk about the earth being flat uh, yeah. because we by the way, there's going to be at least four or five comments just because I said that. Just because of course, I said that. I already know. They're going to go crazy. They're going to go, they're zealots. That's why. Right, right. So it's not like we're making up stuff. This is all kind of based on ancient text, ancient history, ancient um, sources. But let me ask you this, in your opinion, because you are you are on the front line as well as Graham is on trying to get this information out to the world. Yeah. Why do you feel that there's that people are so threatened by information of that doesn't connect with their dogma, their foundational, their psychological foundation. Cause you say mm -hmm. something and I've used this example on the show before is like, if I believe in the, the Christian dogma or whatever dogma, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden you throw in a new concept that makes sense, but does not connect with what I've been taught. And I'm like, well, reincarnation, like if I believe in reincarnation, I can't believe in everything I've been taught by my parents, by my church, right. by my culture, by my society. Wait a minute. Then they were all wrong. And am I wrong? Mm -hmm. and, and then it just, it's just like a domino effect of losing yourself. Hence mm -hmm. why they stop. They want to fight. They want to protect. They yeah. want to go after. What is your opinion mm -hmm. on how, did, and how do you deal with it? Yeah. Because i got to believe yeah. that you get some pushback. <laughs> I, get, I get death threats. Yeah. And people always say to me, you know, you're not afraid of the government. You know, I'm like, the only people that threaten me and have threatened to actually kill me, you know, actually tell me they're going to shoot me in the head and shoot me between the eyes and kill me and so forth. And when I go to the conference, I'll be dead. And these are all zealots. These are have nothing to do with government. You know, people who believe in religion, dogma, uh, flat earthers have given me death threats, you know. So there's no government agency coming to try to, you know, I'm not big enough yet. Maybe when I get 15, 20 million people following me, but right now, the people I have to worry about, I have to protect myself again out of the zealots. Those are the most dangerous people on the planet. And the evidence of this is, look at all the wars that have happened on this planet. <laughs> it's the zealots, the people who are into the dogma and the hardcore belief systems. They will kill you over a, uh, over a political belief. They will kill you over a religious belief or any other type of dogmatic belief system that they've ingrained into themselves. And the reason why people get so angry and offended and pissed off and afraid when you bring up the types of topics that we're talking about today is because like i say all the time when they were born they were given a name a race and a religion and now they've been defending a false identity since they've been born and now all of a sudden here i come i show up on the scene and i'm ripping that false identity away from them i'm snatching it from their soul and that hurts them because every single cell in their body is vibrating and resonating to that programming code that they've been given since birth and now it feels alone it feels naked if you take a, a baby right a newborn baby comes out of the womb and you put it right on the mother's chest the mm -hmm. baby is calm right it's calm it's relaxed the second that the nurse comes and takes that baby away from the mother that thing is kicking and screaming it wants body contact it wants the mother's heat it wants warmth it wants the smell of the mother it's the same thing when you snatch somebody's belief system they feel naked they feel exposed and especially the older they are, the worse it is because now they realize, <laughs> oh, my God, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, this information might be invalid. This information that I believe in so dogmatically that I've held so close to my heart all these decades 
might not even be close to the truth. And now what? No, no, no. I had one guy tell me he was actually a pastor. I know you're probably right, but I got to do this anyway, just in case. <laughs> so what it tells me is this also, which takes me to the second part of my answer. People, the majority, not I wouldn't say 100%, but I would say 90% of the people that are into religion and dogmatic belief systems are doing it for one reason and one reason only, because they believe that if they don't do it, they won't survive in an afterlife for all eternity in peace and tranquility. In other words, what, what they're really saying is, I'm doing this to save my ass. Because if I don't do this, there's a chance I might be cast into this lake of fire. So what it proves to me is there is no true, real love for these entities and these beings that they're worshiping and praying to and it's so fear. forth. And it's fear. it's fear. It's pure, unadulterated fear. That's what it really is. And because of that, they've grabbed on to this thing so tight they don't want to release it because the fear of this lake of fire and this damnation has got a grip on them and they've given that to their kids and their kids are getting to their kids and so forth and so on. And that's the real reason why they're holding on so tight. Reach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're absolutely, absolutely right, my friend. It is, yeah. it's pretty remarkable. I have it. I, I get it to a certain extent here on the show because even people who just like near death experiences are all BS and this mm -hmm. or that because of like that, they can't understand the concept of like, oh, it's pure love on the other side. And yeah. this is one life. And you have another mm -hmm. one you're going to reincarnate. And you're it just throws them out completely. When you have yeah. thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people talking about these mm -hmm. concepts, uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. Now, I want to go back to uh, Egypt for a second. The pyramids. Mm -hmm. The pyramids. Yeah. You, you, we're estimating that they're around 36,000 years old, according to... At least. Know? At least. The, and the reason why is because, uh -huh. well, I'll just say real quick, in the tablets, Thoth's father tells him to build the great sphinx and put his face on it. That's about 36,000 years ago. And then the face that we see on the sphinx now is something that the Egyptians did later on. Because it doesn't it's look actually, proportionate. proportionate not right? proportionate, correct. So people, these archaeologists hypothesize, it used to be a lion's head. It was never a lion's head. It was always a man's face that they never... Either they read the tablets and they want to ignore the tablets or they want to come up with their crazy hypothesis that doesn't exist out of their brain. But what the tablets say is it was it was the face of Thoth. He, even though he's depicted with the face of an ibis bird, that's not his real face. That's a mask, obviously. It's, it's an archetype or metaphor based on bringing darkness to light. But his face was on there because Enki ordered it to be his face. At that time, his name was Ningazita in ancient Sumerian texts. If you look up Ningazita in the Sumerian text, you'll find out that the face of the Sphinx was his. It was aligned to the constellation Leo, which was his time to rule over the land of Kemet. And then what happened was him, him and his brother, uh, Marduk, a.k.a. Amun-Ra, started having these head-to-head -head battles. And Thoth left and went to Mesoamerica. And when he left, his brother recarved the face much later to the face of his sons. So it's Thoth's nephew's face now that was carved into the Sphinx. And that's the face of his nephew, the son of Amun-Ra, that's the face that's up there now. That's why it's it's not proportional to the size of the body. So if the if the if the Great Pyramid and the pyramid uh, structures were built at least thirty six thousand years ago, how the hell did they do it? It's pretty interesting, and you know, and people say, how do you come up with this thirty six thousand? Well, it's not just because of the, the tablets were written thirty six thousand years ago, but when you look at the cycle of the procession of the equinoxes. You discover that if you go back one procession, 
you know, because of all the extinction level events that were going on through just natural geological disasters, it's like, hmm, not a good time to be building a sphinx and megalithic structures because we know for a fact that 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 one extinction level event where an asteroid struck uh, close to the North Pole area, but it extended out disasters all the way down into Africa. So why would you be building pyramids and sphinxes when that's going on? You just wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. So you go back another processional period. You're right at 36,000 years ago. So you go back two processional periods. You have the Emerald Tablets of Thoth saying, I, Thoth, build it, the Great Pyramid, patterned after Earth's force, so that it too might remain through the ages. You have that text right there. And then you have the evidence of the weathering of the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. And you go, wait a minute. These things are super, super ancient. Now, when you look at the way that Thoth talks about building the pyramids, there's a couple things that intrigue me. One, he talks about the ability to manifest stone through conscious thought and cymatic frequencies. He uses the light from his own being, right? So he's using conscious light waves and what? Cymatic frequencies to manifest blocks. This is crazy because hmm. when I looked into it at the time, when I first read that, I couldn't find any science that we can even come close to doing anything like that until... Recently, until about maybe I think it was uh, three and a half years ago, scientists for the very first time in a laboratory used photonic energy, light wave energy and frequencies, cymatic frequencies, sound to manifest real matter into existence. And this is now peer reviewed science. Again, we have rediscovered what was talked about in ancient tablets 36,000 years ago, the ability to use waves and cymatics to create solid matter. So not all the stones were created that way. Some were harvested from a quarry and some were actually manifested into existence. And I believe in my personal opinion that just from being underneath the pyramid, being inside the middle of it, being inside the top, I believe that these the, the Great Pyramid, for example, was built from the top down. Hard to believe, hard, hard concept to understand. But what's interesting is one of these X-Men movies that came out yeah, so this I, ancient god, which is supposed to be Thoth, I guess, he, Amun Ra, he's building the pyramid from the top down. The old, it's an older one. Maybe it came out seven years ago or so, but it's yeah, pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Apocalypse, yeah, apocalypse, yeah. Apocalypse, yeah. right, exactly. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, I just said this on a video like two months ago. It was crazy because that, you know, then that came out, the, the trailer came out. It was crazy. But uh, there's other ancient texts that talk about, you know, uh, 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 the, the pyramid coming from the top down. But it's really, a super advanced structure when you look at the way it's laid out, all the compartments mm -hmm. on the inside mm -hmm. uh, and all the hidden chambers that exist. And of course, hidden secret exits that exist in there because the people who are building from the inside didn't want to be locked or, or enclosed in there and their bodies have never been found, which means they've gotten out some type of way. It's a real super duper structure. Now, this structure of the Great Pyramid is a multifunctional stone computer. It's not just a pyramid that can generate electricity. It's not just a pyramid that can mark the location of stars in the sky. It has a multifunction. If you look at the way it was sitting on top of the aquifer when water used to flow underneath it, when the Nile was much closer, that water would create physiostatic electricity, which would send ions up into the pyramid, which would then be amplified up the Grand Gallery into the King's Chamber, which would then shoot through the apex, which would be transmitted to obelisks around the region to be captured as wireless electricity, which can then be captured by the ancient Egyptians through something called jeds that had cables at the end of them, 
or they can use light bulbs. They can do gold plating and so forth, which we know they did. The other thing is a certain amount of that water would flow up into the base and go down into the queen's chamber, which used to use electrolysis to extract hydrogen atoms. And those atoms would then be pushed through the shafts and pointed at star systems when alignments happen. And what do we use hydrogen for right now in modern times? Communication through vast distances of space. We're trying to commit contact with ET right now. We're trying to contact ET right now. And what are we using? The hydrogen frequency. The same thing the Great Pyramid was doing. They were sending messages to Aldebaran, to Orion, to uh, Sirius. All these star systems that we align with, they were communicating, hey, this is a, an update as to what's happened in the last 10 years here down on Earth. And then the other thing is, um, of course, the fact that it gives you a complete breakdown. Once you analyze the size and dimensions of the stones and the mm -hmm. blocks, you can break down the, the, the year. You can calculate the distance from the Earth to the moon. You can calculate the distance from the Earth to the sun. You can calculate the speed of the Earth on its axis. You can calculate the speed no. of the Earth around the sun and the speed of the sun around the galactic equator. You can even calculate the speed of our galaxy around the local cluster, all from the dimensions of the Great Pyramid. So they encoded all this information in a way that it could it could be eventually uh downloaded or transcribed yeah. by people who would mm -hmm. get it later on it's kind of like the whole you know i could put a movie on a dvd but in a thousand yeah. years there's not going to be a dvd player to play it it would just right. be a, a disc so they yeah. had to figure out a way that mm -hmm. could go beyond language which is math which is the ultimate math. language of the universe that's it that's a, that's the language of god the language of god is mathematics period point blank now, I know this is going to be a bigger question, and we might have to come back to do another episode on this one, but the the Hindu culture and the mm -hmm. Indian culture, they, we kind of touch upon this vast history of of what the, you know, of, of the Anunnaki and, and the wars and all of this kind of stuff. What do you know about the origins of arguably one of the oldest known cultures in in the world? Because the Vedic texts are some of the oldest texts that we, and they say, you know, it's 6,000 years, of course, four or 5,000 years, but the, but the, but the, but the Indians and the Hindus and the priests say, no, this goes back 10,000 yeah. years, 15,000 years, uh, this information. So what, what information do you have about that culture, how they built the pyramids mm -hmm. that they built? What's mm -hmm. I mean, that's a whole world. Yeah. Listen, what's interesting about that culture and all these cultures is that they are so ancient, right? So I'm getting ready to do some research on different temples. And one of them is in India, the Kailash temples, right? Where they took a mountain and carved a mountain from the outside yes. going in to create yeah. those temples. Oh, insane. Yeah. And I'm, but I'm comparing it to the Lalibela temples at Ethiopia done the same exact way. They carved an entire mountain into a temple from the outside going in. And then Abu Simbel, same exact technique. Jordan, same exact technique. So I'm going to document these temples and show the tool marks and the techniques all identical. Again, one master architect, just different relief designs. And you begin to see that these people were under the same tutelage or had the same knowledge as the master architect that came and helped you know, kickstart civilization. In other words, that one person didn't build all this stuff, but taught this knowledge to other people. When you look at the Indian text, 
you discover in some cases, in some uh, areas that I've read, it could be 100,000 years old, 200,000 years old. But that, for me, matches also against some of the ancient Sumerian tablets referencing a time frame of around 400. So this is really super, super duper ancient information. And when you begin to analyze some of the tablets, the Sumerian, you begin to realize that these people that they were calling the, um, they call them the savants, the heroes of all the savants. They were different looking people. In other words, they look like different races of people. And I was like, man, this is pretty incredible. Not only do they look like different races based on the descriptions of them, but then they all went around the planet and duplicated civilizations or built civilizations. And that's when I started getting an idea. Let me research the genetics of the human being and find out why are we different races? Because we should all be the same race. Right. And then I found that there was a 2% variance in genetic material between races of people. And even modern day geneticists say for that to happen in only 200,000 years is impossible. It should have taken millions of years to get black, white, Hispanic, blah, 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 all these different races, you know. And so Asian. And so what they realized was that this is an artificial mutation. I go back to the tablets again, my reference point, And I realized that the reason why we have different races of people is because these beings were different races. Even one married one from a different planet. So what they did was they ruled over, let's say in India, a particular region of the planet, and they would genetically brand us to mark us. This shows up again in the Bible. So we're genetically branded. Black people are not black. I'm not dark brown because my ancestors worked in the sun. That's stupid. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard about. Their son in America. <laughs> their son in China. <laughs> I mean, their son Listen. everywhere, I hate to say. Hot son, too. It's crazy. It's crazy. And the first time I read that, I, I laughed. But I found out it's not because of that. It's because it's a genetic brand. Caucasian, genetic brand. We found out the genetic brand, according to the text, the first Caucasians came out of the Caucasus Mountains. Right? That's over there by Russia. We're, so we're talking about this genetic branding that occurred. And the Indians, they had a genetic branding as well. That's why those people look in a particular way. The Asians, the same thing. It's pretty interesting. So this genetic branding occurred. But these beings also had some blue people. And they also had recorded blue people in Egypt. All right, so all of a sudden, you see these different colored people. And Osiris uh, was green. Ra, not Amra, but Ra was blue. And then you have the Indian beings or the Indian gods that were also blue, right? And so it's this crazy thing. And the deeper you look, you realize, man, these were a multiracial group of beings that came to this planet. They were all hominids, though, that in some way had made a pact to uh, uh, do a breakaway civilization on Earth. Uh, and they worked and in, in, um, in, uh, colluded together for some time before all these crazy wars broke out. Probably sec second or third generation greed, you know, quest for power and all that kind sure. of crept in because initially it was peace and tranquility and then all of a sudden everything went to pot. So at some point that's what happened. But these ancient cultures out of India have some of the most deepest spiritual knowledge, the most esoteric wisdom, the deepest understanding of the higher levels of meditation and how to get into those levels of meditation, mystic capabilities, mystic powers, all this comes out of there. They had the records of the Vamanas and the flying UFOs that they had, the flight plans, 
the designs on how to make them, the information on what they were made out of, and all this stuff has already been discovered. It's not even a mystery anymore. And of course, some of the most vast amount of text and records that we can actually get our hands on, we found coming out of India. So these people are super ancient. It goes back into this ancient culture of advanced beings that arrived here on this planet. And I do believe that the reason why we have mixed races is because each race of people were genetically modified or genetically tinkered with to be branded. In the Bible, you find out that Cain is kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And he's, he's asking God, he's going, God, who's actually really in Lil in the Bible, he's saying, the people out there are going to kill me. Well, there shouldn't even be people out. What people? There shouldn't be people out there. Who's out there? There's millions <laughs> right. of people that are already on the planet. But why would they kill you? Because they, they well, he says, don't worry, I'm going to put a mark on you. So then God puts a mark on Cain so that the people out there will recognize, oh, this is his boy. This is Lil's boy, Yahweh. This is Yahweh's. Well, we ain't going to mess with him. So he genetically put a mark on him to so people would know. And he said, when you find you, when you get out there, don't worry, you're going to find your wife and you'll give, build this whole civilization called the Canaanites. But so again, evidence of someone stepping in and genetically tinkering with us to give us this particular look so that people would know, oh, that's his group or that's his group or that's her group. Don't touch them. And that's how it happened. Um, we talked a little bit about the the mystery school in Egypt. Can you discuss what, I mean, that sounds cool as hell. What is inside of the mystery school? What did they teach <laughs> in the mystery schools in Egypt that Jesus was? Yeah, the mystery schools, deep, deep stuff. I, I did a 36-hour mystery school class, 36 hours. Uh, it's all on my Forbidden Off TV channel. It's uh, you know broken down into hour segments or 45-minute segments, and I still barely touched the surface of the information i could have gone on for two three hundred hours but these mystery schools were put in place and the very first ones according to the emerald tablets were started by thoth right he's known as the or jehudi in africa and he would use this system of teaching where he would get only adept initiates in other words hand-picked people that for whatever reason he felt they had the privilege they deserved the privilege of hearing this sacred knowledge and information that he had carried that had been passed on to him for eons and eons, he says. And so in these classes in schools, it would be uh, philosophy, esoteric wisdom, you know, scientific knowledge, everything from sacred geometry to quantum physics to understanding the philosophy of the world, understanding higher dimensions, how to travel to dimensions. I mean, we're talking about the most incredible uh, set of information or knowledge that you can get anywhere was in these mystery schools, and you had to be handpicked to be able to get in, which Yeshua, we talked about earlier from the Bible, a.k.a. Jesus, was one of these hand-picked adept initiates at the age of 12, which is incredible. And then their job was to keep this information and knowledge sacred so it would pass on through time. The problem that we have is once these quote-unquote gods disappeared or left the planet, or, or maybe even some died, uh, the people who were in control of the information and the secrets of these mystery schools began to uh, form, fractalize, and form out these sacred secret societies. And these secret societies, like Skull and Crossbones and Illuminati and so forth and so on, you know, there's, there's a million of them, they all realized that, wow, hmm, there is a force that exists, but the force is neutral. It can be good or it can be evil. It's up to the wielder of the knowledge. And they began to realize that if they can wield the knowledge in one direction, they can have an enormous amount of power and control over masses and extreme wealth. 
And so these secret societies all came out of ancient Egyptian mystery schools. And then they began to utilize the knowledge and the power and the light for darkness because it works both ways. And they still have a heavy grasp on the, the majority of civilization till this very day. Man, I'm going to be able to, you got to come back, man, because we could talk for another <laughs> 10 days on, 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 on this stuff, man. Uh, I'm going to ask yeah. you a few questions to ask all my guests. Uh, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Oh, man. My definition of living a fulfilled life is to be able to walk in abundance 24-7. My objective on a, on a daily basis is peace and abundance. And when I wake up, I expect abundance. I don't hope for abundance. I don't pray for abundance. I don't wish I had abundance. I expect peace and abundance over my life every single day. And I will it into existence every single day, nonstop. And no matter what comes at me, no matter what blindsides me, I stay true to that. I solve the problem. I don't see issues that come up as problems anymore. I see them as things that need to be solved. I find the solutions and I keep on moving, but I walk in abundance 24-7. If you can go back in time and speak to the young boy that used to be you, what advice would you give him? I would say for that person to not only continue the studies that you're already on, but to understand that there are going to be a lot of dark brothers, as Thoth calls them, the Emerald Tablets coming you know, your way. Things are going to blindside you, things that are going to distract you and take you off your course. But to stay fast, hold tight, and stay the course, uh, because I did have a couple of distractions along the way in my life, as we all do. I think I could have been even far along by now than where I'm at in terms of helping humanity and raising conscience on this planet. But again, it's a process you have to go through. But if I can go back, I'd say just be prepared because I really wasn't prepared. I got blindsided a few times before I realized, oh, this is a natural part of the cycle. But I would say to be prepared for these things and be prepared to look for solutions immediately and don't get distracted. How do you define God? I define God as the natural spark that created everything in the entire universe. And that same spark that inhabits every single atom in the universe inhabits every single atom inside of my body. And that my spiritual source that is animating this avatar body comes from one source and one source only. And that I'm just a fractal of that universal consciousness or that God power, that God energy. And that I'm here to experience life as Billy Carson for a very, very extremely brief moment before I reconnect to source and regenerate somewhere else. Ask something else. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? I believe the ultimate purpose of life right now is to, uh, here in the third dimension, is a proving ground. To learn your lessons, to gain knowledge and information, to transmit back to source what it's like to be Billy Carson, what it's like to be a blade of grass. What is it like to be a rock? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And to provide that information and to learn from situations as a sentient being, how to become better, how to become stronger, how to ascend consciously, and how to really defeat the third dimension and then ascend to higher dimensions. And Billy, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing, brother? You can find me on 4 Knowledge with the number 4, 4BiddenKnowledge.com. And of course, forbiddenknowledge.tv and they can watch a lot of my shows by just going to 4BK, the number 4BK.tv on the web browser or 
Go to your local app store on any device and go get the Forbidden Knowledge TV app. And do you have any parting messages for the audience, my friend? I would just say, you know, keep the faith in terms of humanity. It's uh, at times it does look bleak. It does look like humanity is falling and failing and we're flipping and flopping around. But when you really analyze history as I've did, you'll find that it's the greatest time to be alive. Right now is the greatest time. We're not even close to the end of days. The end of days is not now. If it was going to be the end of days, it would have been thousands of years ago when we had a lot of catastrophes going on, geological catastrophes. It would have been hundreds of years ago when we had the Black Plague, when we had the Bubonic Plague, when we had the Papal Inquisitions, 80 million people being slaughtered for the purpose of putting, pushing out religion, when we had the American Holocaust, 111 million indigenous peoples being slaughtered and killed over 70 years. We don't have that going on right now. There are wars and things going on here and there sporadically throughout, throughout the planet. There is poverty here and there. Overall, though, it's time for mankind to ascend. It's time for us to finally pull up our bootstraps and get ready to do the work. The work is unconditional love, service to others, and spreading knowledge and information that helps uplift and inspire people, period, point blank. And that's what we're here to do. Sure is. Yeah. So, so, Billy, tell yeah. me where, um, uh, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, please go to forbiddenknowledge.com with the number four. When you see me do this, it's not a gang sign. It's my <laughs> four for forbidden knowledge, okay? Some people you got to explain. West Saeed. Actually. <laughs> yeah, all right. West <laughs> like, Guys, four, forbidden knowledge. Yeah. So forbiddenknowledge.com. Of course, get the Forbidden Knowledge TV app on your app store. Any app store, Samsung TV, Apple TV, Roku, iOS, Google Play, uh, Amazon Fire TV, the Forbidden Knowledge TV app on your app store so five-star app on every platform uh so we really appreciate you guys thank you get a seven a seven-day free trial and watch the forbidden conscious awards we just had in miami florida and do you have any party messages for the audience Billy? i would just say keep, continue to keep researching digging and asking questions uh you know don't take anything for face value even the things that you hear me say just go and start looking them up for yourself. Write down keywords in my statements and my comments and go start digging and looking and researching and become your own researcher and begin to learn how to answer your own questions. Billy, I appreciate you and the work you're doing in the world. We will have another another session coming soon, man, because I'd love talking yes. to you, brother. All right. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. <laughs> I want to thank Billy so much for coming back on the show and sharing all of his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 317. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.